Welcome to the Business Brew Podcast. Business Brew started as a simple idea, just coffee with a business expert. Business owners and entrepreneurs could gather around that expert and then ask questions and get answers in real time. The agenda and structure of Business Brew was designed to be simple and meant to inspire a natural conversation. It was an informal gathering created to support the small business ecosystem in the Spokane region. Typically, we met the morning of the first Thursday of each month at fellow co-working in downtown Spokane. But as you know, things aren't typical right now. In May of 2020, Business Brew, like many things, had to shift gears and we switched to an online format, meeting on Zoom and then broadcasting on Facebook Live. One of the silver linings was that each Business Brew has been recorded. This podcast is the result of that shift. David Sloan, a professor at Whitworth University, joined Business Brew on November 5th, 2020 to talk about how to lead your team with emotional intelligence. David, jump in. Tell us who you are, what you're doing, and um, yeah, and then maybe tease out a little bit of emotional intelligence for us and give us your definition so we can be on the same uh, page. Great. Thanks, Josh. Uh, It's so nice to meet you all. Um, You're all doing amazing things. I'd love to hear more about the social and environmental impact. Um, At Whitworth, we we try to train our business professionals to realize that there are multiple bottom lines in doing business and and so profit being one of them but there are other things that matter as well so uh, my name's david sloan i teach management marketing and leadership at whitworth university Um, i'm also a whitworth grad Um, my research focuses i have a, a stream of marketing research but we won't talk too much about that today. My, my management and leadership research focuses on applying principles from family systems theory and marriage and family counseling to the workplace culture or workplace teams, workplace relationships. It kind of came from this intuition that I had when I was in my doctoral studies about, you know, we spend as many working hours with our colleagues uh, as we do with our families at home, and over time we develop those patterns of relationships that oftentimes manifest themselves in similar ways to as they do with a spouse or a sibling or a parent or, or a child. Um, yeah, and let's see, trying to think of anything else in terms of introductions. Uh, this, you know, Josh asked me if you, I wanted to come do one of these business brews and you know, I teach, I teach a lot of marketing, advertising. I teach the marketing strategy and the MBA marketing course for Whitworth. And that is really fun for me. I really love it. Um, I would say my first love, though, is, is uh, creating relationships that can flourish. Um, so, so when I asked him if I could steer away from marketing and toward, more towards leadership in this class, or this isn't a class, this business brew, uh, he, he seemed to think that that was all right for today. So I did. I actually um, really pushed you. I wanted you to come talk about marketing and give us your, you know, that academic side. Cause I'm always curious about that. And so uh, I was really delighted when you pushed back and said, how about we talk about this? Cause I did, I, you know, honestly, I didn't know that that was in your wheelhouse and, and I'm glad you suggested it because I think if I look back at some of the top business brews in terms of attendance and engagement, leadership has always been a very, very popular one. And so I've had multiple people come in from the academic side and then also from the, you know, real world application side. 
come in and talk about that to this group and it's always a hit. So I'm glad you offered that. So I'm really excited. Great. And then also, I know that Josh said to write questions in the chat, but you know, I'm a lot more comfortable when this is a conversation and I know people on Facebook can't chime in, but if you guys want to say something, just go ahead and say something. Um, it's not been my style to, to just talk for more than 10 minutes really without a discussion. Um, that comes from one of my favorite books on, is kind of like a pedagogy book, but it's called Brain Rules. And, and one of the 10 components of Brain Rules was that people just can't pay attention for more than 10 minutes at a time. So I like to give you a little bit something to chew on and then maybe we can talk about it. So um, in terms of emotional intelligence, so we've all, know somebody who's highly intelligent, highly skilled, maybe they got a degree from some really top university, they're promoted into a leadership position and, and only to fail. You know, we've seen people go that path. Like you, you've heard the, the, the saying like, promoted outside of your levels of competence. Conversely, we've also seen people with, you know, decent experience, decent intelligence, and technical skill, not not extraordinary though, but that you know, some level of competence. But then they're promoted into a similar position, but then thrive. Um, has anybody in in this room seen somebody who matches one of those profiles? Go ahead, Mark. Oh yeah, I used to work for a large um, global insurance company, and so I had you know interacting with. 40 to 60,000 people, um, not individually, but, you know, just exposure to a lot of different personalities and definitely see people promoted quickly and, and they were very effective at what they did, at least in terms of getting work done, but weren't always the best, um, making the best connections with teammates and bringing everybody else along with them. Um, and to me, that's part of what emotional intelligence is, is being able to connect with, um, like each member of the team and everyone you work with and understand the things that make them different um, and, and their individual skills and kind of appealing to that um, to help them succeed on their own and in their own way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I found that to be really common mm -hmm. um, because they, you know, people would fit a particular mold that the company had in terms of what is a successful leader. Um, but that, um, you know, and in some cases, people who didn't fit that mold were actually better at, at what they did. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And I would agree. I've, I've seen that even, you know, at Whitworth, where I work now and in other institutions I've worked at where, you know, you, you, you see some people get promoted and you're like, really? They got promoted over that other person? But that other person has more experience and, you know, higher technical abilities, but then they like, they, they approach that leadership position with a different, I guess, a different tone, a different, um, well, yeah, like you said, a level of emotional intelligence. So um, according to Daniel Goleman, he's the kind of a, one of the leading thinkers on emotional intelligence. He wrote, he wrote kind of, you know, the book on emotional intelligence. Um, he's, the, he's not the original thinker, but he's probably the most famous writer on emotional intelligence. And he said that one common thread among effective leaders is that they're high on emotional intelligence. And so I'm just gonna go ahead and show this screen. Um, 
And he defines emotional intelligence as the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions and to handle the interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. So in other words, emotional intelligence refers to the ability to identify and manage your own emotions as well as the emotions of others. So that do I have the capacity to ask myself, how am I feeling? And, it, and I think that goes beyond I'm good or I'm bad. You know, I think there's, you can tease out feelings. Maybe I'm not, if, I, if I'm bad, that could be, and, I, and Josh is like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm not feeling good. And Josh might be like, oh, maybe something's wrong at home. And I could say, no, I'm not feeling good with you. Right, like I could be angry, not like sad about some other experience, right? So, so it, it, part of that emotional intelligence is being able to clearly identify what your own emotions are, but and then also ask, how is the other person feeling? Um, and then you can use that knowledge to inform your decision or what you're going to do about it. And I'm going to stop share again, just. Of course, IQ and relevant job skills are, they matter, right? But Goldman says that, he calls these things threshold capabilities. So you have to have some minimum level of qualifications to, to be able to be promoted into a leadership role where you're managing people who are doing technical work. Um, otherwise, you won't be able to talk with them. You won't understand what they're saying to you. Um, but they're based more baseline requirements for leadership positions. But he says that the EQ is is a must. Um, without emotional intelligence, you can have a clear, sharp mind. You can have great ideas, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to become a great leader. So, um, one thing I love about the way Goldman writes is he identifies five different uh, elements of emotional intelligence at work. You know, this is specific to workplace um, situations. And, and here they are, and if we want, you know, I have exercises for any one of these emotional intelligence uh, dimensions that we can work on today. But, you know, just as a, a basic definition, self-awareness is your ability to recognize and understand your moods and emotions and drives but not just your own moods, but like, what is your, what effect does your mood and drive and, and, and emotions have on other people? You know, so the, the hallmarks of self-awareness uh, self are self-confidence, you know, being realistic about your own self-assessment and, and people who are very self-aware, you'll find that they are more likely to have a self-deprecating sense of humor. So when they get funny, they, they tend to, they tend to make fun of themselves, you know, because it's, it, it is actually quite disarming when, when, when we, especially when we see a leader who is, who is um, self-aware in that way. Um, Self-regulation on the bottom right there is the ability to control or redirect your own disruptive impulses and moods. But self-regulation actually has two parts because with others, self-regulation is more the propensity to suspend judgment, to think before acting. And we can talk about like some examples of what that looks like, but some of the hallmarks are, you know, if you have self-regulation, you're going to be more open to change, comfort with ambiguity, ambiguity 
I feel like somebody who has self-regulation kind of has more of a higher level of pain tolerance for conflict in, um, in relationships. Motivation is, I mean, we all understand motivation is passion to work for reasons that go beyond money or status. Um, and, you know, so you'd ask, like, how likely are you to pursue your goals with energy or persistence? People who are highly motivated tend to be more optimistic, even in the face of failure. They tend to have higher levels of organizational commitment. But commitment's kind of interesting, too, because it's not really a commitment is a three-part construct as well. There's actually there are two types of commitment that we like as organizations and one that we don't. So there's we want we really want affective commitment. That's the like I I'm here because I want to be here. I like it here, and I I agree with the goals and you know purpose of the organization. You've got normative commitment, and Christian and I were talking about this type of commitment the other day. But that's like the type of commitment where you feel like you you're you're there and you're committed to the organization because you feel like you ought to. Like you feel like you like if you left, it would put somebody one of your friends in a hard spot, or maybe somebody. Um, Maybe somebody really went out of their way to get you this position. And so you don't want to let them down or something like that. But then and in the research, both those two types of commitments are linked to a lot of positive social outcomes for employees. But then there's one type of commitment that we want to reduce. It's called continuance commitment. And that's the type of commitment where you're like trapped in an organization. Like, I, I don't want to be here. I hate my job, but I can't go anywhere else because I either don't have any other options or for some reason that you're trapped. Um, but people who are highly motivated have generally tend to have the, the, the more positive levels of organizational commitment. Um, empathy is, I don't know if you guys have taken the strength finder um, assessment. For me, empathy was like my top strength. Um, and so like I tend to uh, just lean into that particular emotional intelligence uh, dimension. But that's not to say that empathy is, I think there are some surprising qualities about empathy because empathy alone doesn't always lead to positive change. And we can talk, we can tease that out as well, but it's just the ability to understand the emotional makeup of other people. Um, and then you have skill in treating people according to their emotional reactions. So people who are highly empathetic um, are more likely to have cross-cultural sensitivity. Um, they're more customer-oriented, and um, and and they, they tend to, as leaders, highly empathetic leaders tend to retain uh, talent better. And lastly, is uh, social skills, and that's just your simply your proficiency at managing relationships <clears throat> and building networks. So it's your ability to find common ground and build rapport. Um, I'm going to go ahead and stop share real quick. <clears throat> um, there's a large research study involving 188 global corporations. Um, and in that study, emotional intelligence was found to be twice as important as technical skill and intellectual intelligence in terms of job performance at all levels. Um, at the highest levels of institutions, the executive levels, Nearly 90% of the difference between what we would call star performers and average ones could be explained by emotional intelligence factors um, rather than cognitive factors. And there's multiple other studies that at varying organizational levels, industry, country, culture that have produced similar results. So I just want to pose a question to you all and maybe we can go around the room. Mark, 
kind of touched on this in your introduction, but do you feel like emotional intelligence can be learned or is it inherent? And yeah, I mean, and what, and if you could explain maybe your thoughts on that. I'm like dancing in my seat as I wait for somebody to jump in. Somebody Why don't you jump in, Josh? Oh, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I think there are, like you said about the strengths finder, I think some people are more, I don't, I mean, hardwired is kind of a, a fixed term, but they more naturally um, feed off of the energy of others, I guess. Um, and, you know, so kind of right out of the chute, you might have a, you know, 11 year old with just really high emotional intelligence. They mm -hmm. might not know what to do with it, but, um, you know, they, they're a natural, but I think that it can be learned. You know, I think, you know, I'm one of those optimists, but I mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, with the right training and the right motivation, I think the even you know for someone who is data driven um and maybe less touchy-feely naturally um the data is there that this is a, a really important skill so i guess my question is do you think this would be um classified as a skill that can be learned i would hope it is <laughs> just for me personally <laughs> I just, I have a hard time like faking emotions and or hiding my own emotions and hope that it's something, you know, that you can practice and get better at and yeah, find ways to incorporate. I think, yeah, I think it is a skill. I hope it is. Don't they say that awareness is the first step to recovery, right, David? So doesn't, step one. yeah, doesn't just being aware that I may not have a high level of emotional intelligence put me in a better position as a leader or even an employee than just being ignorant and saying it's, it's a non part, right? Like it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you were, if you were aware that you were low on self uh, or on emotional intelligence, you would immediately be a little bit higher on that self-awareness dimension, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great thought. Anybody else? Somebody on, on Facebook jumped in and said, so this is Dorothy, and she said, I think it can be both, but identifying what your level is and being willing to learn and put it into action is different. That's a great point and actually a good segue into kind of, now I don't necessarily know that everything that I say is, so everything that I'm gonna talk about today is gonna to be backed by research, but I'm not saying that this is capital T truth, right? We're all just kind of, I wanna, so I wanna hold my claims loosely, uh, but I also wanna assure you that I've spent some time kind of researching and, and, and kind of, yeah, reading the critiques and reading the science behind it. But like Emily was saying, maybe some amount of like strengths-based approach here could work. You know, um, there's solid research about focusing on improving your strengths rather than focusing all of your efforts on fixing your weaknesses. So the idea here is, man, if empathy is my strength, but let's say, uh, let's say, let's say social skills is a weakness of mine. Let's say I just 
I don't like, maybe I'm, may, and I don't think that necessarily relates to introversion or extroversion, extroversion as much as people think it does. Because I, I think I've, I know many highly introverted people who have, who, you know, put me to shame in their social skills. But let's say, you know, let's say I just really dislike people <laughs> or like, or meeting new people or, or creating like networks of friendships. Like I really just don't, like I feel uncomfortable about it. I can take the same amount of effort and put it, take it and put it towards developing my sense of empathy that will take that to like a, an extraordinary strength for me if it's already a strength. If I take that same amount of effort and put it towards my social skills, at best I'm gonna make it mediocre and I'm gonna feel exhausted. But the strengths-based approach, the idea there is by focusing first on your strengths, you, you, it usually pulls up the rest, the rest of your characteristics up simply because you're happier and more satisfied with your work, which has a positive impact on your, on your performance. Um, so I like the strengths-based approach. And so one thing you could do, there's a free emotional intelligence test that you can take. It's on the Psychology Today website. It's not the, you know, I think it's like, it's one of those things where it'll give you a small little uh, assessment of what, where your strengths are in terms of emotional intelligence, but then you can pay money and get like a more detailed report. I, you can do that if you want, but I would, I think a first step would just to be see, you know, take an objective measure of where you lie on, on each of those strengths. Um, Cause with the weaknesses, you can always, you'll always find yourself in a role where you, where, um, where you have weaknesses and sometimes success depends on you excelling in an area that's not a strength of yours. So, you know, you can work around weaknesses. You can devise a support system. You can find a complimentary partner. Maybe, you know, Christian, you know, I know Christian very well and he is, uh, his social skills are incredible. Like he walks into a room and, it, and it's not because he's doing like what you would call networking. He just cares about people and so he asks questions and wants to know their story and so if i if i'm high on other other things as a leader you know i would want to surround myself with companions like christian who could kind of <clears throat> compliment me and fill my gaps right um or you could if you find yourself in a role uh that where you can't overcome a weakness you just find a different role that said when we're working on our building our emotional intelligence uh, probably the best way to start is to build on the ones that you're already kind of good at. And then the work feels fun. So it's good. Thank you. Okay. Well, and, a, oh, go yeah. ahead. I was just going to say, um, so it's really helpful and it, it definitely makes sense to, um, you know, I like the idea if you're, not everything needs to be level, right? You can have peaks and valleys in terms of those five attributes. Are there any where, you you can be high, but if you're too low in something, then it it kind of counteracts. So, for instance, you know, I worked with somebody who had really great social skills, was good at networking, had a really large network, but his, uh, I think, level of empathy was like he would say things that um, where you kind of knew he had good intent, but it came out in such a, a bad way that it was really demotivating. Mm -hmm. um, and was kind of undercutting people and 
anyway, so, you know, how, how, I guess, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, being strong in one area, but really deficient in one or more of the other five? And how does that kind of counteract or, or not? That is, that is really good. So, um, social skills, so if, is the most visible of the emotional intelligence skills. And it's actually one of the most rewarded in terms of companies. Um, empathy tends to be ignored in companies, well, where it actually tends, is really valuable in my perspective. Um, so somebody who, it sounds like this person that you're describing has really good social skills, but, but it sounds like you trust their motives. You say that they have good intentions when they're, you know, in, when they're making decisions or trying to communicate something. So it might be where they might lack a little bit on the self-awareness. Uh, totally. Uh, and, and part of it, it took me about two years of, of working with him to understand that mm -hmm. he had good intent and the right motives. Um, but it just, you know, for a long time, I, I wasn't sure why I was working with him. Other than that, it was giving me certain opportunities to do what I wanted it to do. Um, but eventually, you know, through enough and seeing um, other traits being exhibited, then, you know, it developed that level of trust. Yeah, that, and that's where I was thinking that, you know, you can have social skills, but without the other, some of the other elements, motivation, maybe not so much, but self-awareness, empathy, and, and some self-regulation. Uh, somebody who's highly motivated and highly skilled socially but who lacks self-regulation, empathy, and self-awareness might. I mean, you just, you can almost imagine the profile of that leader, right? Like somebody who probably, their followers probably don't trust them, but they might, if they're so highly, they might be inspired by their skill and their motivation, their drive, and their, and also maybe they fear their social skills because they have all these political connections that they could, maybe you would fear that they would use those against you. That's an interesting way to think about it because, yeah, you can almost you can almost see these patterns happen, you know, with, just based on these profile traits. It's good. Yeah, somebody. Yeah, Emily said what some people will call a ladder climber. <laughs> Anybody well, else want to jump in? I, I mean, we can we can talk about EQ as a whole, or I can start to dive into just do a little bit on each 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 trait so david you said something that really piqued my interest as a, as a marketing person and helping people on strategy and so it's not really it's not really a question and i know that's like the the least favorite person in the room when you're giving a presentation is the person who raises their hand and says this isn't a question it's more of a statement um, but the we've all like we were talking about networking and the people with the good social still skills tend to walk into a room and, and what you said about Christian really stands out to me. I have met prolific networkers over the years who have a huge network and who everybody seems to know, but nobody really seems to like. That's because they're really good at handing out their business card. They're really good at getting your business card and they're pretty good at following up to make sure that, you know, and they might even be genuine. It was good meeting you or whatever. But then you meet the person who sounds like Christian falls into this bucket, who walks into a room, meets a lot of people, but comes away wanting to serve every person in that room. Like, how can I get, and there's, there's books out there that talk about that. I think one's called The Go-Giver instead of The Go-Getter, right? Mm -hmm. Like The Go-Giver. 
like how do you how do you in a network because there's there's something to be and I've really been reluctant to call business brew a networking thing because I don't want those people showing up who are just here to add to their their Rolodex right I want people who want to come build relationships so what I'm keying in on about emotional intelligence is if your strength is social skills there's a big part of empathy that plays a role in you being able to build meaningful relationships that matter to both parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Daniel Goleman would say that social skills is kind of the, you know, the outward focus of the rest of the emotional intelligence. Like all the other things are more foundational. Some of them are just internal and some of them are relational. But social skills is like external. And so like that's where all these other traits kind of can be shared with, you know, other, the public, I guess. So um, you guys want to talk about self-awareness? <laughs> okay. Let me share the screen real quick here. So... You can recognize how your feelings affect you, but self-awareness also has to do with recognizing how your feelings affect others, um, whether in relationships or on the job. So a self-aware person who knows that tight deadlines make them anxious and frustrated, that's me. On my strength finder test, there was like a, there was a, um, one of the strengths, and I don't even remember what it was, it was like completer or something like that. It was like, I, it, under the, the psychological aspect of it is that I have a, a psychological attachment to doing what I say I'm going to do. And when it looks like I'm not able to live up to that commitment, it causes me stress. So um, when it looks like I'm about to miss a deadline, that brings out the worst in myself. So a self-aware person would make sure to plan their time carefully to get their work done ahead of time. Um, someone with high self-awareness also has an understanding of their own values. So, you know, a self-aware person would be confident in turning down a financially tempting job offer if she knew that the job offer didn't fit her life goals or her personal principles. Um, someone lacking self-awareness Conversely, would be likely to make decisions that bring inner tension, but would probably take that job. And in the end, the self-aware uh, finds her work to be more energizing while the other feels drained. Um, let's, what, what, what do you guys think are like environmental factors that affect, that affect your mood or your productivity or your behaviors that you're proud of? Like what are some of the factors that you know, affect you in ways that like make you thrive? What are some things that happen? I was just thinking about, um, so this is, this is not, maybe not an answer to the question because it doesn't really make me proud, but I was thinking about temperature and like how important that is for me. Um, and like thinking about all the people in the summertime that, you know, can't afford AC and all of these things. Like I was just thinking about it's such a like it's such a um like I don't know, just 
a, a lucky thing that I feel like I can be in a good zone because when I'm too cold or too hot, I'm so sensitive. I can't do anything. So, so I, I don't know. I'm talking a, about the luckiness of that. Yeah. So you, you like for you, Annie, there's a, a threshold of literal temperature where you're going to be more happy, more productive, more joyful, more able to handle other types of stress. Yeah, right? sorry, that wasn't a great response, but I just, that was <laughs> a perfect thing that popped in my head. No, that's the perfect response. Any, any other thoughts? Yeah, I know. Uh, oh, go ahead. Me, Josh. No, um, yeah, I would say uh, when there's common values or common, a common goal or a common vision through an organization, um, I feel like you know, where everybody's trying to work towards or what's driving everybody then um, it really helps me I don't know, thrive in that environment. So. so you know that when there's a, there's a common purpose, Christian, that like you're, when you, you, you and your teammates really believe in the same thing, you're more likely to thrive and flourish. Yeah. So yeah. David, Becky jumped in on Facebook and said, being grateful for what I have and the confidence in my ability to get and make the things I want happen. So that's where she thrives. And then I was just going to say that I thrive when, uh, when, when I'm being more physically active, like getting exercise and especially being out on, on a bike for me, if I'm doing those things consistently, which is difficult in the winter, I know I'm at my best. Like I'm peak Josh when I've ridden my bike in the morning. Yeah, because I, and I, knowing you, Josh, I know that that's almost like a, that's like a sacred space for you on your bike. Um, and I, that, uh, yeah, that Becky's thought about gratitude. Setting the intention of counting your blessings is actually, I read a book that was like a conversation between Archbishop, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and they're like totally different faith backgrounds but they it was on it was the book on joy and they they basically said you know joy comes from three different kind of characteristics one is the ability to reframe situations so like this is not that you know the environment is not toxic it's actually it's a it's a complex situation and an opportunity to be creative right so being able to read glass half full type thinking um, kindness and generosity towards others and then in a position of gratitude, He's, they said, they, they agreed that those are the three ingredients for joy. So, um, or three of the ingredients, but we, there are internal and environmental factors that affect this like level of self-awareness, our mood, our productivity. So self-awareness, um, couples who are able to react to conflict in appropriate ways, such as de-escalation, that affects your mood. I, I feel like I, my wife, Mary, and I can <clears throat> have difficult conversations because we respond to each other's repair attempts. You know, so like, because you know when you're in conflict, you get tunnel vision and flooded. And, and, but then the other person might reach out a hand, but you don't recognize it. So you still keep, you dig your heels in. You know, John Gottman, who's like the leading researcher on marriage, um, marriage relationships said that one of the key components to like healthy relationships is being able to recognize and respond to repair attempts in a relationship. Um, so that like demonstrates a, a self-awareness of the role that a married, married person would play in, a, in that emotional system. Uh, internally, uh, 
lack of sleep or feeling hungry. We've heard the the term hangry. Like if I'm if I if I hadn't eaten breakfast, I would just know that that puts me on edge. Like I and I want and I want to be aware of that because if I'm on edge, that really affects the people I'm around. Uh, the impact of your most recent interactions with other people. If I just uh, I actually I walked up to my office and I saw um, this great student uh, who I had in a class two years ago and he's a senior now and just he's just a light he just you know we're what he like left his friend group and just decided to walk up the stairs to me we just caught up a little bit and then I walked into this room and I got to see Josh and like before I got to meet all of you and so I'm already just feeling in a great mood because you know we're I but we I just had two really positive social interactions but if I walked in the door and the dean was like David I need to talk to you about something serious that you did after this meeting right that would affect my mood in this in this meeting right <laughs> Dean Wilkinson I call him Uncle Tim um, but it could be also your surroundings too so like like Christian was saying like it could be the, the purpose of the organization it could be the organization climate or the culture you know are there anxieties about downsizing well how does that how does that affect my mood and how does that how do my moods surrounding that affect other people culture of micromanagement or criticism general distrust um, rituals or like right ways of doing things affect our moods the, the literal weather outside hierarchies and other structures um, so you know, it's it's important. I, I think the first step of self-awareness is being able to name things because once you name the system, whether it's like I know I'm hungry, and I know what effect that has on me, then you're then you're less likely to just be swept away by the the system. You can kind of stop playing the game a little bit. Um, yeah, there's. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about in terms of self-awareness, and I, I, uh, I would really love to dive in, but we we're only on topic one out of five, and I think we have like 45 minutes left. So, um, I actually, can you you guys have a piece of paper, or maybe just take a mental note? I'm going to click through a couple of slides, um, and you, we we know that the we've been told how the majority of uh, Communication is nonverbal, right? We've all heard that. So <clears throat> I'm just going to show you some face pictures, and I want you to tell me what you think. I'll show you three different pictures, so take a mental note of what you think the person is thinking and feeling. Okay, so there are three people, then we'll discuss. So here's here's the first one. Am I sharing screen? No, I'm not. Uh, let's see here. Okay, you see the first picture? Okay. Okay, let's switch to the second picture once you've noted kind of what, what that person's thinking or feeling. Okay, that's the second one. And then here's the third one.
I had stopped sharing. Okay. I'm curious, can we just go around? Person one, what did we think that they were thinking or feeling? Disappointment or anger. Disappointment or anger, okay. I thought it could be some level of intensity. Um, maybe she was really focused on something as well. I My first reaction was what Dean said, but then trying to think about um, other options. Anybody else? It's exactly the look my nine-year-old niece gives me when she is not getting her own way. <laughs> so I looked, yeah, that, that, that anger and disappointment and a little bit of, yeah, something like she might, she's working on how to manipulate the situation. Mm. What about the second picture? So hold on, Dave, real quick. Dorothy and Becky both jumped in on Facebook. Dorothy said she thought that was concern or anger. And then Becky said it was determination. And I'll be honest with you, I have a daughter who is just, we say she's full of big feels. And <laughs> I would say that was more playfully angry. I thought so it was my like, daughter. She's huge, huge feels all the time. Yeah. I <laughs> thought it was more like I'm angry, but there's, I thought I saw a hint of a smile. So um, but also thanks to Dorothy and Becky for jumping in. We we are very aware that you two are here with us on Facebook. So just a minor shout out to those two. Uh -huh. Great. What about the second the second gal? <clears throat> Joy. Excitement. I felt like maybe it was difficult to tell because I see so many people, she was clearly taking a selfie. Um, and I frequently see people, you know, with the neutral face and then they get in a selfie and I do it all the time as a family. And then you put on this fake smile. So for me, it was, it was hard. To, the initial reaction was, was joy, but then I quickly thought, oh, I don't, it's hard to say given the context of the situation. Well, and that's the case for this exercise, right? I mean, there's no way to really know, except for I'm going to tell you afterwards. But uh, okay, what about the third? What about the third person? I think I think that was me, and uh, that could be anything. Um, you know, you might have heard the term like chronic B face. Um, <laughs> I've been told I have that sometimes. So, um, and my a joke with my wife, you know the. This is my happy face. So, <laughs> that really, you know, the third one I think could could really be about any emotion. That's I'm great. the same, Dean. Dean, my uh, kids say I joke that I have a single face, regardless of my emotions, and and they can never tell. So I'm I'm right in there with you. <laughs> well, and for both of you guys, that shows a high level of self awareness, right? I remember the first time I ever spoke in front of a church. Uh, I was like just graduated i interned at a church and i had to since i was interning i had to give an announcement and it was you know 250 people of like really kind really warm loving people who all looked like they wanted to murder me because they all just like you know and it was so it's it's good to like be aware of like how our how we present ourselves affects other people so that's good um there are really lo lots of good thoughts that you guys said. And the purpose, I, I, I thought of this actually, this exercise actually last night because I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I illustrate this point? 
someone with a high level of emotional intelligence would default to exploring multiple stories for whatever type of body language and not just only focus on one. Um, so, you know, person one uh, was not actually angry. Um, she was just concentrated. Mark, you actually teased that out. She was concentrated because she suffers from hearing loss. And so that's what her face was looking like. Person two, um, actually, Mark, you got this one too. She, that was, that person was not happy. That, I took that from a, um, I didn't even get the selfie reference. That was like an insight that, that was really good. Um, they're actually masking their depression so that others won't know about their situation. So, uh, that came from like, yeah, a, a website on, uh, it's called like smiling depression or something like that. And then person three, <laughs> have you guys seen the Amy Cuddy Ted talk on power posing? So this is just a screen grab from the interviewer that she talks about and who this person is trained to give no nonverbal communication, which sometimes even like, negative nonverbal communication is easier to deal with than somebody who just has a blank face because you're just like you don't know what they think right so but the the poor part of that um the, the purpose of that was just to just realize like you know somebody might not actually be feeling how they look like they're feeling and so being willing to be open to other possibilities um, which brings us to our next uh, characteristic, which is self-regulation. And that's the part of EQ that frees us from being trapped by our own feelings. Um, so it's the ability to control or redirect your own disruptive impulses and moods. And with others, it's the propensity to suspend judgment, to think before acting. So it doesn't mean you feel bad emotions, um, people who can self-regulate do have negative feelings when they're in difficult conversations or situations, but they're able to find ways to control um, or even channel them in useful ways. So just remember, self-regulation actually has two parts. It's like an internal and with others. So an example of somebody who's high on self-regulation is that cashier who can stay polite and calm when angry, when an angry customer is berating them for something they have no control over. Um, or the child who refrains from throwing a tantrum when she's told she can't always have the toy she desperately wants. Um, a couple who's in a heated argument about something that's important to both of them and just deciding to take some time to cool off before continuing their discussion instead of like going into this spiral of a yelling fit. In fact, that there's a Gottman, back to Gottman, he had, he, that's called physiological self-soothing. Um, he, Gottman had this like UW, he called it the Love Lab, uh, it was like a, uh, on the UW campus and there was a, uh, an apartment where they would have couples spend a weekend and try to just have a normal, have as much normalcy, so they'd bring their pets, they'd bring their newspaper or magazines that they'd read, but then they would monitor their pulse, they would monitor, they had cameras in everywhere except for the bathroom and the bedroom, so they could monitor their like body language. Um, and then they had microphones so they could monitor the words and also the tone, tone of voice. Um, and what they found is that when couples were asked to discuss something that was um, like kind of a heated issue, um, when they 
they were they actually did this experiment where they came in and said, hey, you know, we gotta adjust the equipment. Like while they're in the middle of this conflict, we, you know, they're messing with the cameras and stuff. And they said, why don't you guys just, you can start over in like 20 minutes. It's just gonna take us 20 minutes to fix this stuff. And they gave them, they said, don't think about your issue. We want you to come back to it fresh. So, so just like read a magazine or something like that. And they came back, their heart rates were lower. They were more open to those repair attempts. You know, so physiological self-soothing is one way to, to regulate yourself. Another example of uh, self-regulation could be a, a student who's tempted to throw her friends, to join her friends for a fun night out, but decides to stay in to study for an exam, or a man trying to lose weight meets a friend at a restaurant and sticks with like the healthy options. So it's like this, as you can see, self-regulation covers a wide range of behaviors from, from small minute to minute choices to the larger, more significant um, decisions that might have a significant impact on whether we meet our goals. So uh, here's, a, here's a kind of a business example. Um, and this is actually an excerpt from, from Goldman's writings. He says, imagine an executive who's just watched a team of his employees present a botched analysis to the company's board of directors. In the gloom that follows, the executive might find himself tempted to pound on the table, table in anger or kick over a chair. He could leap up and scream at the group, or he might maintain a grim silence, glaring at everyone before stalking off. But if he had the gift for self-regulation, he'd choose a different approach, right? You know, he would, he'd pick his words carefully, he'd acknowledge that he would be truthful, he'd acknowledge the team's poor performance, but without rushing, rushing to hasty judgment. He would then step back and consider the reasons for the failure. So are they personal, lack of effort? You know, are there any mitigating factors? He has this awareness of like, okay, what are the, this, the other people's emotions looking like? And so they start asking curious questions. And what, and what that does in terms of self-regulation is it, it takes the self-awareness to be able to practice self-regulation. Um, but then it takes that intentional effort because once you start asking these curious questions, like, um, you know, what's my role in this whole debacle? Uh, it kicks your brain out of this like flooded tunnel vision, fight or flight part of the brain and puts it more in the rational solve, problem solving part. Um, in conflict, there's a lot of literature on how to um, like manage or navigate uh, difficult conversations. And the first step is always to articulate what you want out of the conflict. You know, do you just want to win the fight or do you want to find a solution that can, everyone can agree on? Just simply asking that question affects your brain. It, it takes you out, redirects you from using that emotional fight or flight part of your brain to the rational problem uh, solving part of your brain. So um, just to, to pipe in here. Um, one, one book that Gretchen and I read that has helped me with the self-regulation part is called No Ego. Oh. And um, what, I mean, it helps you identify, you know, what the author calls as ego behavior, which in a lot of um, situations, it is that fight or flight. It's that kind of lizard brain response self-preservation or just, you know, capital E ego that clouds our judgment and, um, you know, forces us, you know, 
it makes us see things, um, you know, motivations of the other person or whatever. So to be able to stop and pause and say, wait, that's my own ego behavior, <laughs> muddying the situation or even like relating to others as um, suspending judgment. So it's like, well, that's not really, you know, that's just ego behavior. That's not really the the issue or the problem we need to address at this point. Um, I just wanted to, to put that, it's, it's definitely has helped me a lot just to say, whoa, that that's just ego behavior. It's not the actual problem we need to address here. That's really good. So you would, you would, um, would you recommend no ego? Oh yeah. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I, yeah, I love that. It, when you were talking about that suspending of judgment, I mean, imagine, and, and this relates to, you know, uh, being open to multiple stories. Like, let's say somebody cuts you off in traffic, like your initial gut response is to flip them off, right? But what if you knew that that person was rushing to the hospital because their child was there and, you know, shoot, then you're like, let me help you get there, right? It totally changes your frame of reference. I uh, more recently had somebody come to me and ask me to read an email uh, that somebody else had sent to them. And I was like, what, what, what am I supposed to be seeing here? You know, cause I'm looking at it with outside eyes and it was a professionally drafted email um, that was sent to this person. But um, this person and the person who sent the email had had a conflict in the past. And they're like, but look at line three in paragraph two. So it like totally put a lens on, of mistrust on this whole, whole email. It didn't allow for anything productive other than hurt feelings to happen. So that's why I like self-regulation. So you have the self-awareness that allows you to practice self-regulation and then that, um, and then that frees you from being trapped by the emotions of yourself and the behaviors of others. So really good. Okay. I'm going to go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah. I just had a question to kind of follow up on uh, the comment that you made. Um, just before Emily's discussion about articulating what you want and you know, keeping the emotion out of it. And uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of struggle with or it is a challenge for me, I'm you know, much more on the like analytical, technical uh, side of things. And uh, you know, for me, some of the communications that I need to have are this needs to be done because that's what it says in your contract or, you know, this needs to be done because, you know, that's what the, um, you know, drawings require or specifications require or things like that, that are you know, very uh, uh, much of a technical nature. And somehow I need to like enter into those conversations, um, you know, with a, with a softened approach um, because, you know, just saying that this is what the contract says, you know, is not a necessarily convincing way of you know, getting someone to come on board or agree to um, that conclusion. So I'm, I'm just a little curious about arch architectural standpoint, like architectural drawings or yeah. In, yeah. Engineering construction. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and those, you know, those notes, you know, are very important. I just, I'm building a house right now and I just have a guy um, revise my foundation and footings plan and, you know, and then I was meeting the concrete guys there this morning, like it, like you have the, the clarity and correctness is highly important, right? In, in those types of scenarios. So are you saying that when you're giving feedback um, and you say, because it says here on your job description, are, the, are your, what, what, what's the other person's response? Are they feeling, are they feeling attacked? Are they feeling defensive or are they feeling confused? Or what does your intuition say about their feelings? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's, there can oftentimes be resistance to that, um, you know, as if it's uh, an attack or, uh, and so getting to that, getting to that as a uh, conclusion, you know, I, is, is what I want. Mm-hmm. But in, it, it can sometimes be difficult to, you know, if you just articulate that, if you just say that directly at the outset, you know, then it's, mm-hmm. then, you know, you could be uh, in, a, in a more tense situation. So, so it almost seems like sometimes um, that I, I need to try to find ways of, um, not necessarily putting emotion into it, but uh, somehow appealing to um, appealing to a common goal, appealing to you know some kind of interest that you know to, in order to like help convince the importance of that technical aspect of a drawing or specification or terms of a contract that you know, might otherwise be uh, overlooked or dismissed as inconsequential, you know, that's, um, so, so I, I share all this just, you know, to say that from, from that standpoint, it can sometimes be a difficult to just straight out the gate, you know, articulate, Hey, this is what I want. You know, this is the conclusion I'm trying to get to, um, because it can oftentimes you know, be met with resistance at the outset. So anyway, that I just wanted to share that and, and see if you had any you know, suggestions or feedback on how to improve that, uh, communication to want those conversations to be more successful, right? Where yeah. you both walk away, you know, feeling like you know what you need to do and the conversation went well, right? Just in a general sense. Um, that's really, I, I think you articulated already a couple things that, you know, are, have proven to be effective. So like focusing on like, where's the common ground? Um, like, do you want this other person to succeed? You could say that like, I, like there's more things that you want than just this one particular outcome. You want, and, and there's certain things that you don't want. So that's also the other side of it, right? You want you want a like productive and useful conversation that um, that doesn't lead to defensiveness and like damaged relationship. So even you could articulate 
those things. And, and then you could also articulate the, like you said, the common ground. And it could be, we both want your success. You could say, um, we, we both want this project to be successful, you know, things like that. And then uh, something that Josh, turns out my, looks like my camera froze. I can try to turn it off and turn it back on, but you guys want me to try real quick? I'll try. I can still hear I, you, if, which is good. If I turn it off and turn it back on, it'll just go to a fun, uh, and if it doesn't work, it'll just go to a, an entertaining. Uh, it's not going to let me. Oh, and it's not going to show my, my, uh, shoot, my uh, picture that is usually up there is me juggling torches. <laughs> oh, well. It's not going to, it's saying cannot start video. Um, I'll see if I, it'll let me choose my virtual background. Nope, it won't. I apologize. I should have just left it on my frozen face. It's, uh, it's all good. We can still hear you. Um, one thing that Josh talks about when he comes to my advertising class is uh, this philosophy of, by Simon Sinek, uh, that where the whole, you know, if you want to give somebody direction, it it's, can oftentimes be helpful to start with why rather than what, um, you know, so I, I wonder if there, there's some element to this uh, colleague of yours that, you know, their, their, their assumption of why is because you just want to micromanage when the reality is that, you know, there's other whys that are actually legitimate because that's not your intent. Um, and then back to the Gottman thing, um, for a, a rela any relationship really to flourish, it requires five to 10 positive interactions to every negative. So if every conversation with a colleague is like, here's, a, here's an error and, and there's, here's the feedback, that I would say that like in general, that's relatively neutral, but if it's being perceived as negative, um, then, then you face issues of yeah, defensiveness, lack of trust, maybe some cutoff, emotional cutoff or, or um, emotional reactivity and things like that. So, man, I'm really bummed about this camera, but sorry. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next. Well, I was going to say, David, I think this conversation just about self-awareness uh, in, in response to emotional intelligence, you could, we could almost spend the next 20, and I'm not encouraging you to stay on this topic or move on, but we could almost stay here, at least from where I'm concerned. And I'm watching the conversation that's coming in on Facebook. And so if you haven't been watching, if you want to open up your chat, if you're on the Zoom, I'm telling you what Becky and Dorothy are contributing. Um, and Becky is just being completely transparent with us, and it's been amazing. Um, but some of what she's saying, I can echo, which is, um, you know, it's one thing to do this at work. It's another to do it at home. And some of us might be good at one or the other. Um, and I think that's something to also consider when you think about how your home in life or your home life might impact your business life. Um, as you were saying, you know, the conversations you had leading into this. Um, and then the other thing that has stood out to me is that like, so there's a lot of these things that these, these outside influences that we, like if I'm hungry and I know that impacts my mood, I can eat. If, uh, if I know that exercise is something that I need to get, I can make a plan to exercise and then I can, you know, short term, I can go, okay, it's okay. I didn't work out today because I know I can do it later. 
one of the things that's come up both on Facebook and here is how much sleep impacts us. And, and yeah. we really have such little control. Like I can plan to go to sleep tonight, but as those of you who've been working with me know, I'm in, I'm right now sleep training our two year old. It's not, there's not a lot of sleep happening right now. So like, there's not a lot of control I have over that. So I just, before we really transition away from the self-awareness piece, I'm wondering if you have any tips in some of the stuff you've read when those, those environmental factors are, al they're just almost out of our control and how do we, how do we work through those difficult situations to make sure that we're, we're giving our best and, uh, and that we're receiving others best? That's a great, a great qu question. Um, Cause you're right. You know, when your child is not sleeping and then you work and then you come home and you have to help with dinner and clean up and then do it all again, that, that is out of your control. And, it, and since it's such a, a part of your rhythm, uh, it's not something that you can change in the short term. And so, you know, <clears throat> so those ones, you know, but I love how you're able to even just like articulate how that affects you. And you can walk into those conversations with other people like, hey, look, I know that I seem like I'm upset. I'm not upset with you. I didn't sleep at all last night. I'm happy with you, right? Being able, because self-awareness is understanding, not only understanding how you're feeling and what your emotions are, but what are the potential like effects on other people that your emotions have? Um, and so, you know, a lot of the work comes from if, you, you know, carving out the time to like journal, um, to do a lot of the like self work you can take, take understanding like what your psychological profiles are can be helpful. Uh, like the, the, the Myers-Briggs is helpful. Um, the Enneagram is helpful. None of these are like perfect, right? They, cause they do in order for our brains to understand complex schemas, like the human, like humanness, we have to like simplify. And so these, these instruments kind of put our personalities into little boxes, which is overly simplistic, but you know, or, <clears throat> but they can be helpful. Um, so yeah, well, <clears throat> I really, David, I like just, I like that idea of journaling to just document where you're at and maybe that helps you process your way through. But it's almost like we all just need this disclaimer tag that we wear that was like, FYI, I slept two hours last night. Hang in there with me, right? Like we just like these. And so maybe, and what I hear you saying is it's, it's probably not a bad idea to announce that to people, right? I mean, and that's, and it is kind of risky, right? You, like it takes some level of, so emotional intelligence doesn't really necessarily talk on this idea of humility. Um, but it does take a level of humility to be able to be vulnerable about what, where you stand emotionally and share that with other people. But I've found that it ends up kind of like the self-deprecating humor. It does, it disarms people and to where people, you know, people who you don't know that well see you more as a real person. So that's really good. Um, do you mind if I move on? Because I love empathy. We haven't got there. Just I can do uh, I can do um, motivation like this the very quickest because it's just the the one trait that all leaders share 
um, it, the, the key is just the drive to achieve. <clears throat> but rather than factors like a big salary, those with leadership potential want to achieve simply for achieve, achievement's sake. So there's a there's an author named Dan Paint that I really like. Um, there's a whole li literature on what drives people and motivation from Maslow to other other you know great thinkers but i like dan pink because his ideas are super approachable for any audience and he basically says that you know what motivates people is like autonomy which is your you know like the ability to make your own decisions and and uh and choose your own destiny mastery so like just getting better at something is fun and that's motivating um, it's why I practice drums because I love it, and then and then like what Christian said earlier, a sense of purpose, some higher, um, higher level purpose. And there's there's research studies that show that those those in fact impact performance in terms of like tasks that require cognitive ability more than just an incentive. Like a, you want somebody to be creative, don't just give them a creativity bonus. You know, like appeal to those other deeper desires like autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, empathy, let me start with uh, a story. Um, so for an example of this trait, consider what happened when two giant brokerage companies merged, creating redundant jobs in their divisions. One manager called his people together and just gave a gloomy speech that emphasized the number of people who would soon be fired. The manager of another decision, division gave his people a different kind of speech. He was upfront about his own worry and his confusion, but then he promised to keep the other people informed and to treat everyone fairly. So like the difference between those two managers really is empathy. Because manager one was too anxious about his own fate to consider the feelings of his anxious colleagues. The second could sense, you know, the, the anxiety in the system and acknowledge others' fears with his words. You know, we've all experienced an empathetic teacher or a friend. Um, likewise, we've also felt the lack of empathy by a coach or a boss. Um, but empathy is said to be one of the most um, one of the most visible traits of emotional intelligence, but it often seems like business world does just kind of it comes off as soft or like unbusinesslike. But one thing I like about empathy is that it's not simply adopting the emotions of others and trying to please everybody, but it because that's not empathy, that's fusion. That's enmeshment. That's like and when that happens, you tend to lose perspective. In terms of emotional intelligence, empathy means thoughtfully considering the feelings of others as well as other factors with make, when making decisions. So I'm curious for you guys, like, I mean, you guys, have you, two of you read No Ego. It sounds like everybody really cares about this stuff. So how, how do you develop empathy? One book, David, that I really liked uh, as a leadership book is called Radical Candor, 
and it was by uh, Kim Ball Scott. And she talks about um, the leadership logistics, like how to manage teams that she learned between, I think it was Apple and Google. And she, she took those and, and one of, she talks a lot about the structure of management and she talks about building into those structures, those opportunities to talk to your team beyond just performance reviews. Yeah. And I think if you're talking about like an actual structure to it, it's, and there's, there's this whole mindset and you'll know more about this than I even do, but I know that old corporate world was like, leave yourself at the door, like leave all your personal stuff at the door. And when you come in here, you're just a, it's like, you're a robot, you're a part of this team. And I, and I think creating space for people to be people. And, and that's why I liked Kim's book is you, you have to understand that these are whole people. And so she even goes into talking about how she helps their team identify their goals and their dreams. And then she helps work them toward those dreams. And, and a lot of it is like a lot of times these people don't want to stay at this company forever. And so she's helping them gain experience and, and skills to get them to the place where they will thrive and helps them. So really being concerned with the whole person. And she, like I said, if you're not good at that, she, she gives a really nice framework for how to do that. And the overall theme of her book is how providing honest feedback to people is better than anything. And she talks about what we were saying is over identifying like that fusion. Mm -hmm. She calls it ruinous empathy where you over identify so now it's impossible for you to give constructive feedback to a team member because you over empathize with them in a dangerous way. I mean, that person might still need constructive criticism and feedback, right? Um, so I, from that perspective to your question, I just really like when somebody can provide me a structure for how to do that, especially in areas where I know I'm weak. That's really good. And then and Christian just made a note about, so there's Edwin Friedman, who was the first person to take Bowen's theory of family systems uh, and apply it to institutions. Um, and he has this whole idea about the, the, the difference between empathy and responsibility. And that, I mean, you just really described that. Um, so over like the the like shadow side of over empathizing is that like, oh, I'm really sorry. Oh man, you know, I know, I know that your cat kept, you know, needing you before you came into work and that's why you're late. And, but then like, you're, you're so concerned with rocking the boat that like the behavior actually never changes and that person never actually grows. So um, that's really good. What that's called radical candor. Yeah, and I just shared a graphic uh, that kind of, she gives a chart that she breaks down these four pockets that you fall into mm -hmm. and how to get into that radical candor. And she basically defines radical candor as respectful confrontation. Um, and and, and it, it provides, I just, from a logistical standpoint, it's, it's a great book. Yeah, I'm, I wrote it down, so I'm excited to check it out. I think there's a, like, what the, there's a lot of overlap between the theories of the books that we're talking about in here and this framework for emotional intelligence. Um, you know, from a personal, if you want to personally develop your own empathy, I think it starts with this idea of listening better. Um, one study found, uh, on uh, medical doctors found that physicians typically interrupt their patients within sec 18 seconds of the appointment preventing the uh, patient from describing 
you know, what brought them to the office in the first place. Um, and so in my classes, I, I oftentimes do this exercise. It's very awkward. And if you guys want to participate, you should do it. And I'd really love to hear how it goes for you. But um, you don't tell the person that you're doing this, but you, you start, you ask questions, but then in your head, you count from five to 10 seconds and you do not interject for five to 10 seconds. And we do it for 10 seconds in class and it's very awkward. And I tell them not to break eye contact and, um, and, and I, I give them a tip, like while they're waiting, they paraphrase in their mind on what they just said, you know? And, uh, and what we find is, you know, when you have a shared awkward experience, there's already a, a little bit of increased intimacy. But it, we found that a lot of people got out of passive conversations and into more active dialogue because of the intimacy. But um, there's another, you know, just idea that effective dialogue is, if it goes too fast, it ruins the dialogue. It's like driving along a treacherous, windy highway. Um, so if you guys want to try it, I'd love to hear how it goes. You know, we, I have students do that as homework and then they reflect on it and come back to class. and without a doubt, they come back and say, you know, I had a phone call with my mom, or I, I had coffee with a friend, and I did that, and then I didn't talk for 45 minutes, because in that five seconds, the other person talked again, and kept going deeper and deeper and deeper, and then they felt, I felt like I understood them more, and then they felt like they really were listened to, you know. Um, another approach to empathy is, uh, Empathy is one of the 10 characteristics of uh, my favorite philosophy on leadership, which is servant leadership. Um, and uh, the, the world's foremost scholar on servant leadership is this guy named Larry Spears. And he said, to show empathy is to look at a situation through the perspective of another. So it involves assuming the good intentions of coworkers and colleagues which is interesting because we can have good intentions our whole lives but do nothing but harm our beloved we've all been there where we said i didn't mean to hurt you well but we did right it's like we're really good at hurting people without trying right but if you want to take that empathetic approach it starts with the assumption in other people that they have good intentions in fact most unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, you probably have good intentions anyway, or at least neutral intentions. Um, and, you know, in servant leadership, they differentiate the difference between empathy and, and sympathy. Um, but um, I love, I, I love empathy because, you know, people who empathize are more likely to be trusted by followers. And that doesn't mean you always accept their point of view. Uh, nor does it mean that you accept poor performance as adequate, but it gives you insight into their perspective so you can more, more effectively support their growth. So that's kind of the, what Friedman calls the fallacy of empathy, right? If we, you know, if, if, if we do accept poor performance as adequate, that's not really empathy. It's actually a low tolerance of pain, of pain in a relationship to have those difficult conversations. Um, an empathetic, I, I think another element of empathy um, lies in your ability to, to, to seek the perspective of the other when you've harmed them. Like we said, we, we have, in, 
if you're going to be close with anybody, you're going to, there's going to be harm. There's going to, you know, if, if, if you are ever going to be like one of my closest friends, I will unintentionally harm you in some way. Um, but the empathetic person not only apologizes for the harm, like if I snapped at you because I was, I just got grilled by my boss or I just, you know, or I'm hungry or I didn't sleep. I don't say, um, I'm, I'm really sorry I snapped at you. You know, will you forgive me? Because that, all that does is it acknowledges my own behavior, but it doesn't involve, remember we talked about you can have good intentions, but harm your beloved every day. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't allow the, pers- the harm to articulate the impact. So, you know, if I'm really gonna be empathetic, I'll say, I'm, Josh, I'm really sorry I snapped at you this morning. How did that make you feel when I did that? And then, and then that gives Josh the opportunity to say something hard for me to hear, like, Anna, really felt, it caught me off guard and I really felt like maybe you didn't value my friendship like as much as I do. Those are tough, that's a tough question to ask because then I'm actually opening myself to like a real shot in the gut, if, you know. So an empathetic person would then go ahead and ask for forgiveness for both one and two. Josh, will you forgive me for snapping at you this morning and in doing that, just treating you like I don't value our friendship? I really do. And then the fourth thing would be to actually change, right? You have to put in some kind of, because I can't just snap at you every day and then ask you how it felt, made you feel, and then ask for forgiveness. That's like one of the things that I love. Uh, like, you know, if you, if you can sense, it's more than just understanding the other person. It's it's actually taking action. I think empathy is more than just, it's more than in the head and it's more than in the heart. It's also in your it's 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 not just your your attitudes and your thoughts, but it's also your behaviors in relationships. So, David, I have a question on that. So, um, you know, in that conversation, how do you also, uh, with emotional intelligence, convey whatever the reason was that you snapped at, snapped at Josh? You know, Josh, I snapped at you because you didn't you know finish this assignment that I told you to do, or somehow also you know, while apologizing for snapping, still getting the message across of what your expectation is. Yeah, so I think that is, a, that is such a great insight. And I think one of the greatest attempt, uh, temptations um, when we apologize is to also blame at the same time. Um, so I would, I would, advise that whenever we are going to own up to some of our own part that we separate that and we just own it um and then that that alone creates like uh, an environment of trust where you can also address other issues you can say separately i still would like to talk about this other thing but i'm going to do it i'm i'm not going to be snapping at you anymore though i'm going to really work on that part um you know, because Josh, even if it's okay, let's, if it's me and Josh, and maybe it's, maybe it's not just because my, my, I didn't get any sleep. Maybe like Josh said something that like, like elicited some emotion and then I snapped at him. I'm responsible for my own emotions, not Josh. So that's that self-regulation piece, right? Josh can come at me 
as a real big jerk. But if I have self-awareness, empathy, and self-regulation, I'm willing to entertain different stories. Maybe he, the, he's coming off a little bit harder at me. Maybe there's something else going on here, you know? Because if I don't feel like that's right, then, you know, I should be open to more stories. Otherwise, I get tunnel visioned into a fight. That's great. I, I, yeah, the, the forgiveness piece is really tough. You know, the, those four steps, what I just described to you guys, um, is something I learned in my premarital counseling. And, and I've tried to, I've tried to like, um, do those four steps in all my relationships now, because just saying what you did and apologizing doesn't feel like it goes all the way anymore. So all right, David, on that note, I really want to be sensitive to everyone's time. So the first thing I'm going to do is say thank you so much, David, for joining us. And thanks everyone else who joined us between Zoom and Facebook. I'll be honest with you, I probably, this is probably the, the least amount of talking I've done at a business brew this year, uh, which is great. It means I didn't have to facilitate. The conversation happened naturally. Uh, and I love that. Uh, the engagement between both Zoom and, and Facebook was outstanding. Uh, so one of the things I want to do with this one is I probably will be downloading the Zoom chat and then making that available uh, on the blog that I typically post following these. So you can you know, see a little bit more of the conversation. Um, so thank you everyone for joining us. And thanks David for taking time out of your morning to join us. If you've got a run, that's, I totally understand. If you want to hang out, I have one final question, David. Uh, th there's so much really good content and so many good things, but I would love a couple of resources to maybe help us dig a little bit deeper if we're interested in doing that. And you've already mentioned several. I know you talked about um, uh, Daniel Goldman as, as sort of the, the, one of the leading thinkers on this. Uh, do you have any other suggestions on, on books or resources? that I can share out, uh, that you can share out now and then I can share out following this uh, in the blog conversation? Yeah, so um, if, if leadership is, is, your, is your bag, I highly recommend uh, just the book called Servant Leadership by Robert Greenleaf. Um, if, if more like a, a popular approach, but also very backed by science, but the, the book reads really, um, really easily, you can get it on audiobook. Um, it's called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. That's, um, there's multiple authors for that one. Um, that's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, the Strengths-Based Approach is a, a book called First Break All the Rules, um, and that's by Gallup and, um, and Don Clifton. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. Uh, so many good ones. Uh, those are just the ones off the top of my head. I also are you just, are you just looking at your bookshelf and <laughs> <laughs> some of them are on my bookshelf. I would also I would also um, highly recommend. Uh, it's like seven I, for any relationship system. I, I just highly recommend John Gottman and the seven some kind of seven tenets for making marriage work or something like that. I don't. But I, I would say that you're, you, you'll, you'll get so many good nuggets for every type of relationship that you're in um, from that book. Gottman's amazing. I read his uh, Raising Emotionally Intelligent Children, and it's really great. Uh, I can't tell you I'm winning at that, but uh, <laughs> it's good. Um, so, Look at that self-deprecating humor right there. <laughs> what can I say? Doesn't mean I'm good at any of this, but... Uh, 
Uh, so, I mean, lots of great resources. Um, so I appreciate you, you sharing those out. Any other, any others that you want us to be aware of before we call it a morning? Um, no, I just, I'm so grateful to you all. I'm sorry that my camera went, went off, but just such great conversations. And I just feel inspired by all of you and your, and the way you kind of deepen my own thinking with your questions and your thoughts. And so I wish we could do this like every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's been a, a few requests already for a part two. So I'm not really sure what we, what, what the goal is with that uh, other than we just want to keep the conversation going. So <laughs> Um, maybe stay tuned. We'll do another one with David in the future to double back to this conversation. It seemed to be just a really positive one. So uh, on that note, uh, thank you everyone for joining us uh, on Facebook, on Zoom. Uh, we appreciate David's time. Um, and David, if you want real quick, do you want to put your email in the chat so people can follow up with you if they have more questions or want to dig a little deeper? Yeah, let me pull up the chat right here real quick. Emily made a good suggestion, emotional intelligence during COVID. I thought, there you go. <laughs> That's so, so good and so timely. And there's always a lot of, a lot of richness. I mean, because everything's super heightened right now, isn't it? I mean, and you have to renegotiate all of your relationships. It's like going out for coffee is like going on Tinder. Like how, how, how safe are you being? How many people are you with? Like, yeah. are you careful? <laughs> Yeah. And it's also, it's, you know, also post-election, you know, there's a lot of big things floating around right now. So I definitely think it's a conversation that it's heavy on people's minds. So, so thanks everybody and have a great morning. Thank you all.